We can offer better service. We can offer good desserts. We can offer an amazing wine list. Uh, we can use incredible produce. You know, and that's sort of like the, the elements we, we thought of when opening Mr. Wong. What, what, what are most Chinese restaurants missing? You know, we wanted to create the whole package, basically. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Rules were meant to be broken. It's something we've seen throughout the culinary landscape, sometimes with complete disaster, other times taking diners to new exciting heights. But breaking the rules successfully requires a firm understanding of the rules, of the foundations and backbone of cookery. Dan Hong is the executive chef of Mr. Wong, Miss G's, Sushi E and Queen Chow in both Enmore and Manly. Dan, how are you going? Hey, mate. How's it going? Yeah, good. I'm good. How are you? Awesome. It's good to catch up. You've been a bit of a rule breaker um, throughout your culinary career. Were you always a, a, a rule breaker in life? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, uh, <laughs> uh, look, I wasn't the, you know, I wasn't the best kid, uh, best son in the family. I was basically the the bad kid sort of uh in school just you know my parents sent me to private school and i hated it and you know i didn't do well um i didn't study at all i wasted my parents money uh, <laughs> so yeah i mean i just hated studying like i hated going to school like I, the only thing i liked about school was my mates and um i guess that's why i got into you know something like hospitality you know cuz i didn't want to study at all like like you know i the thought of university like was just like no way because i'd hate doing assignments and and anything projects anything like that you know so i i i, I promised myself like if i ever finish school i'm i never want to like do an assignment ever again basically is that what drew you to a career in hospitality well i mean it wasn't like you know, I, well, for one, I couldn't even get into university because I got like 48 in my HSC. Um, but, you know, obviously I grew up in restaurants. My mom owned, th- at the time she owned three Vietnamese restaurants in, uh, two in Cabramatta and one in Newtown. And I grew up sort of working, you know, uh, in the restaurant when I was, when I finished school sort of for a few, like for six months um, as a dish dishwasher and waiter and stuff, and uh, my mum, it was my mum who suggested I become a chef because I, you know, I had there was no no other option. You know what I mean? Because she wasn't gonna give me pocket money because I finished school, um, and um, she noticed that I because I had to cook for the family a lot, like. Uh, for dinner because my mum was always working. She worked bloody like 100 hours a day. She would work. She would leave in the morning. She'd drop the kids off at school or me and my sisters, then leave in the morning after to go to Cabramatta to do lunch service there because it was really busy and then uh, go straight to Newtown and do dinner service there. So uh, I would have to cook a lot for my my family, like my sisters and my dad because my dad couldn't cook. Um, and I, I, I used to watch like a lot of cooking shows, like, uh, you know, Jamie Oliver was like huge for me, like when he first came out and, um, 
yeah. So I, I, I always was interested in cooking and that's when my mom suggested I become a chef. What was your cooking like back then? Were you breaking the rules then? Uh, yeah. I mean, look, you know, when you, when you, when you're at home, you always look in the pantry to see, you know, cause you don't know how flavors work. So if you have a piece of meat at home, like a steak, or whatever, you always look in the pantry to see, Oh, what can I marinate this steak in? Or what can I just, whatever's in the pantry, you know, you'd, you'd use bloody dried herbs and this and that, and you know, some Worcester sauce. And you think that like adding 20 different ingredients <laughs> to your meat and your marinade would make it taste better, you know? Um, <laughs> but yeah well your influence on the culinary landscape is phenomenal and we can get into everything you've done since joining the Maryvale group but the the people that you train under are some of the most important um, chefs in Australia's history um, tell us about the early days when you were doing your apprenticeship and working with Martin Boats oh I mean look it was it was pretty awesome um like, uh, you know, thanks to my, thanks to my mom for hooking me up with a job under Martin Boats at Long Grain back in 2001. And, um, that was sort of, you know, I didn't really have a passion for cooking or anything. Like I was, obviously I was never the one to be like, I want to be a chef when I grow up. So my passion for cooking really developed, developed when I, you know, started working as a first year apprentice at Longgrain and they made me sort of, I just made for the first six months, I literally just made curry paste every single day. So I made about eight to 10, you know, eight to nine, maybe curry paste a day, red, green, jungle, like all yellow curry, um, chili jam. I deep fried about six kilos of echelots every day. Like it was, it was nuts. I had to put like the the fruit and veg away every every morning when it came in, and um, you know, I, I was I was I was taught a lot by the guys who were working there, especially about um, you know, with Thai food, it's it's more about training your palate, you know, to really grasp that sort of balance between sweet, salty, sour, hot, and all that, and that's sort of what I really appreciated. Uh, you know, being a first year to learn that type of stuff um, in terms of, you know, there is no recipe, you know, there is, you just add some enough sugar, enough salt to, to create that balance. And that's really, really what I got from working at Long Grain um, as a first year apprentice. You moved on to one of Australia's most successful restaurants, which is very different to uh, Long Grain, and you were part of an uh, incredible alumni of, of chefs to work at Tetsu's and go on to do amazing things. Well, what was it like joining that kitchen? Uh, well, it was funny because I, um, I, before met Tetsu's, I worked at Mark for like a year and a half, and I thought I was pretty damn good at fine dining, right? You know, like it was sort of like – you know, Mark, Mark trained, Mark was one of my main mentors. And then going on to Tetsuya's, it was a totally different game because it was just like, there was a multiple number of chefs and you were only allowed to do a certain job or a certain section or a certain dish, um, where sort of was just like, everything just had to be absolutely perfect. Um, and then, you, you know, for the first two weeks, you just like, you're just annoyed because you're trying, you're trying to do everything right, but everything's just wrong. You know, you'll get like every second chef going, nah, that chive is like too small. That chive is too thin. 
you know, and all that. And it was, it was quite frustrating at first, but then once you, you got into the groove, um, it was, a, it was a pretty awesome place to work. Like, I mean, it was a bit, a bit groundhog day ish, you know, because I was on like the, the trout section, uh, with, with Jowett at the time, Jowett started, Jowett, you started about a month after me and, um, yeah, I mean, we just bloody did the same. Like you could, you could, you come to work and you would know as soon as it hit three o'clock, that person over there would be, you know, like Phil Wood over there would be making raviolis. Luke Powell would be chopping tomato concasse. Dan Pepperell would be making beetroot carpaccios. Like, um, you know, Darren Robertson would be uh, portioning the trout. It was just sort of like you knew exactly what everyone was doing at, at a certain time of the day. Um, that's how sort of regimented it was. Both um, Mark, under Mark Best and uh, Tetsu, is both of them have created the most incredible alumni of chefs and you were part of both of those kitchens. And a lot of a lot of you are really great mates too. What was it about those kitchens that created such incredible um, chefs? I don't know, man. Like it's just sort of, I, I guess we were just fortunate to be cooking at that time where I'm not saying there aren't passionate chefs anymore or like enough passionate chefs but you know we would like me I just remember like we would just talk about what was going on around the world like all the time like restaurants around the world like you know um you know we would save all our money and on the weekends would go to certain restaurants and we would just talk about you know what Ferran was doing what Charlie Trotter was doing what Ducasse was doing what Michelle Brow was doing and just you know, we that would be our sort of motivation. Going like, oh man, look, you know, there's this guy, fucking, you know, this guy in Spain, like, you know, who's doing this type of stuff right now. And then we would try certain things. And you know, when I first went to Tetsu, is like they would, we were doing sous vide back in like 2005. You know what I mean? Like it was just like <laughs> it was just sort of like. I don't know. We just sort of all had the same passion for, uh, I don't know, perfection in food. You mean, at, at the time, that's what we were obsessed with. Was We were obsessed with fine dining and what was going on around the world and who was making waves and was like Heston Blumenthal and stuff like that. So um, I, I guess that's why. I mean, obviously now we're not cooking the same type of food or in, motivated or inspired by the same type of scene, but um, – I think back then we all had the same passion of working for the best restaurants we could, you know. You ended up working with uh, uh, Mark alumni Brent Savage in a tiny kitchen, and I think that's the first time I met you. How different was that iteration of fine dining and being absorbed in that world where the Bentley just got started? Oh, man, that was like some of the toughest times, you know, like working – for I mean, it, it was tough, but it was also really, uh, you know, uh, like satisfying to work in. To be, there was the first sort of restaurant where I was a part of in terms of like starting from scratch. And you know, I was always forever grateful to Brent because I, when Brent told me about Bentley and he wanted me to be part of the opening team, I wasn't going to be the sous chef. Actually, I was going to just be a chef to party coming from um, Tetsuya's um, and uh, actually Elvis and Ben Milgate were going to be the sous chefs. Uh, 
Wow. And they actually pulled out to open Bodega, like last <laughs> minute, right? <laughs> wow. And I became the sous chef by default before I first opened <laughs> at like 21 years old or something. But, um, but it, you know, it was sort of, uh, it was really a real learning process for me being the first sort of senior position as a chef and really, uh, you know, really obviously I didn't want to let Brent down with his first venture on his own as well with Nick Hildebrand. So it was sort of, it was really cool just being a part of that. Um, you know, we were trying to do some different stuff, you know, a lot different sort of really inspired by what, you know, the people in sort of San Sebastian, Barcelona were doing at the time. Um, and it was really cool, you know, really cool to sort of, you know, do that type of food and, you know, you always doing different techniques and, you know, learning different techniques that no one else was doing in Australia. Um, but yeah. Well, at the time, the term molecular gastronomy, gastronomy was being thrown around everywhere. And I guess Brent was, um, kind of in that boat in a way. Is there any dishes that you remember, um, from that time? Uh, yeah, I mean, there's a, I mean, there's a few tapas dishes, like, you know, we had to like, I don't know, I mean, we had to like thinly slice potatoes and wrap, wrap little chorizos in, in them and skewer them and like all this different modern type of tapas and popcorn chicken. And, um, like we used to do obviously, uh, spherification, um, making pearls and, you know, stuff like that. Um, I just remember all I remember was just being in the shit every day. Basically, we was just we were just never we could never just you know we were always chasing our own tails because it was just there was just so much prep and then we'd wait for suppliers to come in and we'd just we think we'd be ready and then two boxes of baby artichokes would come in and we'd have to prep them before dinner time and oh, it was it was tough it was tough but you know extremely gratifying like it was it was really really cool and Brent Brent you know Brent doesn't get enough credit where credit's due. He's, he's one of the greatest chefs in, in Australia. You know what I mean? And, you know, for him, to, he, Brent is one of the most consistent chefs in the scene, you know, but, you know, he just doesn't, you know, he, he's such a humble guy. What was a really key pivotal moment for you? I know you spent a bit of time at WD50 in New York um, before joining and becoming head chef of Lotus. Tell us about that period of time and, and how things changed for you. Well, things changed because I, I went to uh, WD50 uh, to stage with the intent, the intent of like being sponsored so I could live in New York. And obviously when I, first, when I got there, I found out they don't sponsor anyone and all the Aussies that worked there were just working there illegally, basically. <laughs> <laughs> um, so um, that's actually where I met uh, Glenn, Glenn Goodwin. You know, he was the manager of WD50 at the time. And, um, you know, and I thought that was what I wanted to do. Like I wanted to do like molecular gastronomy. That was what we were doing at Bentley. I wanted to do that. And um, when I found out that I couldn't really stay, so I stayed there for two months and I came back and I was just sort of, I actually was didn't know what to do when I got back. I came back and worked at Bentley casually for a bit. Uh, but I knew I didn't want to stay at Bentley or anything like that. Um so, yeah, and then I just literally on the second day I was back in Sydney from New York, I got a call from Frank Roberts to, you know, uh, 
see if we wanted to catch up because Frank used to always come to Bentley and sit at the bar and stuff. I knew him from back in the day. And um, he was like, where do you want to eat? Let's go for lunch. Like choose a Maryvale venue and at the time. I was like, I want to go to Est, you know, because I back then that was like the best. Like it was like Peter Doyle three hat. I've never been. And um, yeah, that's when he was sort of like, look, we've got Lotus happening. You know, if you want to do a tasting or whatever, see if you want to go, we want to, you know, see if you want to put your hand up for the head chef role. And I, I thought I might as well. What was it like joining the Maryvale group? It was a big group at the time, but it's obviously much bigger now. And part and part of that is your influence too. Um, tell us the early days of Lotus of what it was like being a head chef for the first time, trying to create your own food. Uh, well, look, when I first, if you look at it now, Maryvale probably has about 3000 employees on the, on the books. And uh, when I joined, I think they had about 700 so it's yeah, it's it's grown exponentially the business, um, but yeah, I mean, look when I when I first started, I I obviously didn't know what my style was. I was a bit, I didn't really have any identity as a chef. So I just you know I knew it was a bistro obviously, but you know the Pots Point crowd, they're very sort of it's hard to win them over to be quite honest. Like especially around that area, Chalice Avenue and all that Maclay Street, you know they know what they want. So it actually took me a while to sort of win, win the locals over, uh, because I, you know, I thought, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to do bistro food, but I'm going to use some of the techniques that I've learned at Bentley and so on. So I thought I'd use a few modern techniques and maybe combine combine a few Asian flavors here and there, and and not much. I mean, some of the dishes were good, some dishes weren't. You know, it was sort of really quite a little bit confusing for a bistro. Um, especially coming after uh, Lauren Murdoch, who was, you know, really simple sort of uh, rustic Mediterranean flavors, you know. Um, yeah, but it was cool. I mean, we, we, we were a great team, you know. Uh, you know, Jow at you was my sous chef. Uh, Dan Pepperell was like uh, chef the party. And we would do, we would do like 100 covers, just the three of us like on a Saturday night. It was pretty cool. We had a good team. Um, what was it about that foundation that you built that led to this incredible uh, influence that you have with the multiple venues? Uh, look, I don't know. I mean, look, I I always go back to, um, you know, I got to thank Justin in terms of when his idea was to, you know, take over the spot when Miss Jeezy's and do just sort of food that I love to eat and, that I just think is delicious. That's sort of when, when I really found my stride, like really found an identity about sort of like what, this is what I am. This is what I want to cook and so on. So I feel like ever since we opened Miss G's, I, you know, it was more about, look, I just want to cook really delicious food with no rules. And look, if you want to come and work for me and, and really, you know, know how to, create you know uh a base of flavors and, and layers of complexity in 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 a dish without making it too fussy and making it fun then um then join me join me you know join me let's do it you know so um that's the one thing i can i'm proud about sort of showing this the chefs that sort of worked under me through the years is sort of um uh, understanding where flavor comes from and how i understand flavor and how i can really 
get the most out of um, taste the, the flavor of each dish. You know, Wombs G's was was the restaurant where you really did sort of prove how to break the rules successfully. Is, it, is there any dishes that really stand out for you from um, the early days? Yeah, I mean, there's always there's obviously two dishes that are still on the menu now that um, I think you know. Uh, you know, that I think are timeless. And it's the Vietnamese steak tartare uh, with prawn crackers. Um, you know, that was sort of, you know, not many people were doing Asian style beef tartares back then in 2010. So, um, you know, that, 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 that always, I, I, I can never get sick of that dish. And then obviously the prawn toast um, with yuzu aioli and we use like a, um, sourdough instead of just a you know normal crappy bread which really adds that extra crunch and and making sure that the prawn part of the prawn toast is like double the thickness of the bread you know so it's sort of like that's what people were just like oh my god like this is this is prawn toast it's like yeah man this is like (laughs) so it was sort of like those type of things where i can i don't know like the, the best dishes i think are dishes that people can relate to obviously can identify with but obviously your take on it that uh, makes it you know you can you can sort of make it a little bit better and and make it your own you know what sort of uh role and how important has that um, foundation of those fine dining restaurants had on your ability to um, take things to a different level and and be so creative um look it's pretty huge i mean as you know, as head chefs or as an exec chef or whatever, you, even if you don't run a fancy restaurant or fine dining restaurant, you want a chef. If you're looking for chefs to work for your brigades, whatever, if they have that one or two years of fine dining training, it's like, it's just so, it's just such an advantage. Like, I don't know what it is. It's just sort of like the way you were trained in terms of discipline you know the way you uh, you think about food, the way you your behavior within the kitchen, how clean you work. It that sort of training is is almost vital. Even if you don't want to be a fine dining chef later on, that if you did that 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 one piece of advice to any chef, I, I would say is do one do those two years of fine dining before you like become a head chef because that training is just like. It's so vital to for you to become such a great chef, um, you know, in terms of the, the technique and, and, and uh, just the way you think about food. Uh, because after you get that training, because that's the fine dining training, there's no questions. Like, it's like, why can't you do this? Why, well, this is how we do things, you know. Okay, so you don't question it. But then once you've done that training and then once you – go out into your own then you can question everything because you know how it's done right however how it's been done for the past 20 30 years and now you can question it and actually change the technique or change certain flavors because you know you have that base of understanding uh the technique whether it be a technique of a dish the skills of how to make that dish or or the flavors of that dish if you know what I mean. Do you know what I mean? Do you understand what I'm trying to say? Like, Yeah, yeah absolutely. Well, Cantonese cuisine is one of the real heartbeats of Australian food. Uh, 
tell us about the period of time with the decision to create Mr. Wong. You know, there's amazing institutions like Golden Century or Flower Drum. Was it, was it a challenge at the time and were you nervous about delivering such a big offering like that? Of course I was nervous, man. Like it was just sort of I never had the training in Chinese cooking, obviously, but me and Jow, we we loved eating Chinese food, obviously. We, you know, Jow's Taiwanese, I was, I'm Vietnamese, and we, we always used to go to – on our days off, we would eat. We'd go to Chinatown Haymarket. We'd go to, you know, suburban places like to eat regional Chinese food everywhere. We would just go looking, like, where, where can we eat? What's new? What's different? So we, we, we especially because we've been cooking for that long by then, 10 years, uh, we'd have an, we have a basic understanding on how to cook Chinese food and how Chinese Cantonese flavors work. But fuck yeah, it was daunting big time because, you know, when Justin, you know, you got to give credit to Justin when he was like, look, I want to knock down Tank and I want you to run a Chinese restaurant there. And I was just thought about how large Tank was. And I was like, oh my God, that's like fucking like, 300 people or whatever and you know that even scared the shit out of me doing 300 covers a day and now we're doing you know obviously we've been doing thousand covers a day stuff it's normal it's like a well-oiled machine now but back then it was i mean it took a while to learn how to to, to get to the point now it took you know a lot but uh look it, it's one of the most yeah it's yeah it's crazy. It's crazy to think, you know, that Mr. Wong now is such a well-oiled machine. It's almost like, uh, like a Sydney icon now. It's almost ten years old. Uh, but the, look, the 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 inspiration was Golden Century, you know, because the inspiration was okay. How can we? I'm not saying. Golden Century is bad, but because Golden Century is like my favorite restaurant, but it's how what does what does Golden Century not have that we can do, you know? I mean, because we can't match the food like in terms of the food's amazing at Golden Century, but what 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 can we offer a good Chinese restaurant? We can offer better service, we can offer good desserts, we can offer an amazing wine list, uh, we can use incredible produce. You know, and that's sort of like the the elements we we thought of when opening Mr. Wong. What 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 are Chinese most Chinese restaurants missing? What elements of Chinese restaurants that are missing? You know, we wanted to create the whole package basically. Well, one of the features when walking into um, Mr. Wong is the, all the ducks hanging, and I've been there and um, missed out because they'd sold out. I don't know how popular it is. What, what sort of volume of ducks do you go through in a week, and what does it take to prepare the duck? Uh, we go through about 80 ducks a day. Wow. And uh, it's, it's sort of almost like a three-day process. So the ducks come in um, uh, in the morning, obviously, and they're – we they're already pumped so you have to separate obviously the skin from the meat in order to get the crispy skin usually they you know traditionally you you'd put your like your mouth against the neck of the duck and you'd blow so hard that it would the skin would separate from the skin but they use an electric now and uh so basically we make a brine right so we make a brine and we brine them overnight that's the first day the second day, we take them out of the brine and then we blanch them. 
Uh, that's to you know to tighten up the skin so it gets a bit gets more crispy and, and roasts more evenly. So you blanch them in boiling water, then you dip them in the maltose solution, and that's what makes it really glazed and lacquered when you roast. And that's the second day, and you you hang them up, and then the third day you roast them. You've uh, managed to straddle an incredible career with multiple venues at, at Maryvale, but also you've hosted television shows and been judges on television shows. What's that world like for you? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's not bad. I mean, I don't, I don't, uh, you know, the end, you know, I, 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 I like it. I like sort of doing an, an different aspects of, you know, just being a chef and going to work and sort of doing service. I, I like to explore uh, different, uh, I guess, avenues. Uh, but to be honest, like that's not my, that's not what I want to do. Like it's not what I want to do all the time. Like I just like to sort of few, film a few things. You know, if I have, you know, I've got a, I've actually got a TV show um, coming out soon with SBS. Uh, but that would only take about two weeks of my time away filming the whole season and then coming back to work, you know. So I, I like doing those things and I think it's fun and it, you know, it gets, it gets publicity out there and uh, it gets more people to come to my restaurants, which is great. Um, but, uh, you know, um, I'm, you know, if people enjoy it and um, it makes them happy, then I'm happy. Do you know what I mean? Um, that's why I do it. Yeah, that's why I did the Instagram thing during lockdown. You know, I just wanted to show people how easy the food I make is. Yeah. You've covered so many more cuisines, um, you know, with Puppy Chulo and also um, El Loco, um, Queen Chow, so many different cuisines. Well, what's what's some advice that you would give in delivering such different um, cuisines and uh, what's important to make them successful? Uh, well, what's really important is you really have to have that really basic understanding of the flavors of each cuisine. Um, you know, with, we, we don't, we don't take things lightly when we open up certain concepts of different cuisines. Like for, for example, El Loco, I went to Mexico twice. I went to LA. I really ate as much as I could to really understand the Mexican flavors and the techniques that go behind Mexican cooking. Um, same with, uh, you know, Papi Chulo. You know, we went, me and Pat Friesen, before we opened, went to America, went to Nashville, Memphis, Texas, so on, uh, to try different barbecue as well. You know, so it's sort of like you can't, not everyone can just do it, you know. I just feel like you need to have a basic understanding um, of the flavors and the techniques before you want to do something like that. Um, Cause I wouldn't be comfortable doing something like I wouldn't do it if I wasn't comfortable doing it. You know, you've been a part of the, the direction of the culinary landscape in Australia for the last uh, decade or more. Um, how do you see Australian cuisine um, and and where it's going? Um, I think it's great w w where it's going now. Uh, you know, we're, we're not saying there's no room for fine dining, but it's sort of, I think the, what makes Australia great is those, you know, we, I think um, 
people are starting to just eat what they want to eat, if you know what I mean. It's sort of – before it was sort of dictated by uh, the trends and sort of this is, you know, we go to a restaurant and the chef just cooks us, you know, what he thinks is good. But I think now it's 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 become a bit more relaxed and casual where – I think we don't want we we don't mind paying like a you know two hundred bucks for a steak, but I don't want to be forced to have six courses. You know what I mean? Like it's sort of like I think that's where it's heading in terms of eating. You know, paying for amazing uh, service, we can pay for amazing produce, but we don't want to we don't want to commit to like a sort of uh, that bracket of just you know, five eating five, six courses or, or so on. And I think that's what's so good about Australia and that's what's different to um, a lot of other countries is that, you know, um, I don't know. It's the it's that freedom of, you know, eating what we want to eat. <laughs> I know you're still uh, quite young, but you've achieved so much and there'll be much more ahead, but... What's been your proudest moment so far in your career? Uh, I don't know, man. I can't put it really put it to one one sort one sort of moment. But I guess uh, a proud proud moments for me as 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 you know where I am now is the people that have worked you know under me and have left and have achieved great things on their own. That is what sort of I would love my legacy to be, you know. That's what makes me makes me feel great, you know. Well, that's already already happening. And, um, Dan, we've loved having you on Deep in the Weeds today to share your story. And I know there's much more we can talk about, but we look forward to seeing this new show on SBS soon and and what, you, what you're going to bring to the um, dining table in the future as well. Thanks a lot. Please keep in touch and uh, we'll catch up again soon, mate. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we share the stories of Australia's hospo community, suppliers and producers in search of hope during this pandemic. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.